is up, everybody? Welcome back to Mile Higher Podcast. This is episode 70, and today we're talking about Kurt Cobain. Yes, conspiracy and chill today, right? Yes, conspiracy. We haven't done a conspiracy in a while. No, it's been a while, I think, since we've done anything really conspiracy related. Well, there's been a, like a real crackdown in the mainstream on conspiracies and we don't want to get blacklisted and like, you know, have our content limited. Yeah, so. Just as things start going well for us, you yeah. know, we get like banned from YouTube. Yeah. That'd be terrible. Yeah. So we've been kind of like pumping the brakes on that a little bit, but we thought it would be really fun to look at one that I, I really believe. I mean, it's an interesting one for sure. I mean, there's a lot of compelling evidence to suggest that yeah. you know, there's this conspiracy around Kurt Cobain's death. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to address too. when we're talking about conspiracy, like the word conspiracy is actually a legal term, which means, yes, you know, two or more people in together committing a crime. Right. Um, like yeah. shoplifting could be a conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, people, especially millennials don't understand the word conspiracy. Yeah. Or people it, think everything's a conspiracy. It's so and funny. the older generation too, I feel like doesn't well, understand conspiracy too, yeah, as well. Yeah. They think it's just like wing nuts that are thinking like mm-hmm. crazy ass shit, but no, there's compelling evidence. This one's really crazy. And there's a lot of people that don't believe it. So we're really welcome both people to listen to this and just kind of, you know, be open-minded over everything, you know, try to look at both sides and you just have to be really open-minded about this yeah. one because yeah, you know, there's definitely a chance it's not real. Right, like right. I can't say with 100% certainty that right. this is like truth, right. you know? So the conspiracy very, we're investigating is whether or not Kirk Cobain actually committed suicide or was he murdered? Yes. And the official story that many, many, many people believe the mass majority of people I'd say believe is that he committed suicide mm-hmm. um, in 94. So there's, and he may have. Which he may, he may have. have. He absolutely could have. But we're going to explore more of the conspiracy side of it. And could it be possible that he was murdered? So yeah. what's the evidence that people have for this? Yeah, exactly. Be interesting. It is going to be very interesting. So let's go ahead and jump right into things, though. The first thing that literally went viral this week or a couple of days ago even yeah. is this video. <laughs> it's hilarious. And it shows a little creature being some people are calling it an alien. Other people are saying it's literally Dobby or Cretan, the house elf from Harry Potter. Oh my gosh. How funny. Here's the, was here's this, the video. Wait, was this in a, like a neighborhood on a, like a next door kind of app or neighborhood? It or? looks like it's like a house security cam. No, it, but where was this content posted? Like was it on Twitter? Oh, I don't know. Tw- just, just by this oh. random account. Again, this is like a random yeah, okay. shit, but it's got 30 million <laughs> views and all of you, a lot of you guys were tweeting us. Like, yes. oh my God, have you seen this this could be evidence of yeah i think a lot of it you were tweeting it to us as a joke though yeah yeah so here here's the video if you haven't seen it yet it's that's it literally 10 seconds and what do you think of that so I mean, it if looks you're, like bullshit to me. If you're it looks listening, like a kid, maybe like in a costume, maybe though, but the legs are too skinny for it to be a kid. I feel like. So then what is it? So for those listening, it it's literally looks like a door opens because you can see a shadow, a tall shadow in the right hand side and this little creature. Yeah. All you have to do is go to Twitter out. and type in like Dobby video and you'd find it. Yeah. Walks out and like stumbles all weird and awkwardly like for a couple seconds and then it ends like the clip just ends. There's no more footage. It's just that yeah, short, tiny yeah, clip. He just disappears. Yeah. So is it real or is it nah, fake? Nah, man, I'm going to say hoax on that one. 
Yeah, I, I don't see why this would it's be going to be a no for me, dog. Is it funny and entertaining? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I made I a got joke. quite a laugh out of it. <laughs> yeah, no, I made a joke on Twitter. I said it looks like Dobby just stumbled out of the bar at 3 a.m. Yeah, and it actually really does like because he looks like drunk. starts like kind of yeah, it yeah like, it's like looks wobbling up, around like, like yeah. I don't know. I thought it was pretty funny. Yeah, that is. So, yeah, let us know what you guys think about that. But the next thing we wanted to talk about is a, a real scary story about an Ohio doctor who's accused of murdering 25 people with fentanyl. Jesus. So, yeah. Scary stuff. So, like, in one of the largest murder cases in Ohio's history, a doctor was charged this past Wednesday with killing 25 people over four years by prescribing fatal doses of fentanyl, which is an extremely powerful opioid, yeah. to critical care patients at hospitals in and around Columbus. Which this doctor's name, uh, Doctor William Hustle, he's forty three, but he pleaded not guilty. He said he he had tried to provide comfort to dying people, not to kill them. He had he said I never made any attempt to euthanize anyone, but patients, families, things like that are saying different uh, mm. about this, and that the amounts uh, were really large in comparison to what you would actually get, give somebody if you weren't trying. To kill them. So like one, another doctor said that uh, these are very high fentanyl doses for patients without significant Mm. opioid tolerance. So you don't need the doses that he was giving. So it's almost like it's malpractice. It's negligent for sure. Yeah. But is it murder? Like, was he a killer? Right. Was he trying to kill them? It's a hard, I think. Should he be held responsible? Absolutely. Yes. I don't know. That's really interesting to think about whether or not he was like purposely trying to kill people or was he just like being negligent? Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot. He was giving them huge doses. Well, then it almost seems like maybe he was like, I mean, it's happened before. I thought I saw another case that was so similar to this. I'm pretty sure if any of you guys know what I'm talking about, like I read an article about this really recently that was a different different guy. Pretty sure he's a nurse too, but I don't know. Yeah, there's I know definitely this kind been, of stuff has happened before. Sure, or like Doctor Death, that neurosurgeon yeah. who who like did some fucked Purposely up shit on people, killed people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, he was administering doses of 500 to 2,000 micrograms of fentanyl, just, which other doctors are like this ugh. is insane. So a lot of people think he was intentionally like euthanizing them. Oh, that's wild, man. But what's even more interesting is that this doctor actually has a criminal record. In 1996, he pleaded uh, guilty to improperly storing a destructive device or pipe bomb oh. at Wheeling Jesuit College Why is in he West a Virginia. Doctor? And he was spent six months in jail for that. What? Okay, I've changed my mind. He's probably killed them on purpose, I feel like. And now they're trying to argue it's just malpractice. I think, I mean, he's going to get jail time for sure for this. I oh, mean, he yeah. faces 25. It's just a matter of how long. 25 murder charges. I mean, 25 murder charges. You'd expect someone to go to jail for life. I'm pretty sure that's what will yeah, happen. Each of them carries a, a 15 years to life. Are they sentence. looking at death penalty or no? No. They, the prosecutor yeah, said he's not really going to That's really ironic since it's like he basically gave all these other people the death penalty. Yeah. And a lot of, a lot of the families are really pissed, obviously. Like, <sighs> yeah. why are you giving him administering this high of doses can you imagine how i mean we know the feeling of being angry at doctors we've been angry at all my doctors Mm -hmm. and god when my grandpa died recently like we were treated so badly by the hospital staff remember how angry we were just from that and like they didn't kill my grandpa like they made some questionable decisions that we were but can you imagine being a family member and finding out 
They gave way too much fentanyl. I'd be so livid. Which is a, is a killing machine at high doses. Like, yeah. it will kill you. It's yes. actually one of the leading causes of, of death in the country yeah, as far as the opioids substance. go. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to see what happens when he goes to trial and see what the, the jury comes up with. But, I mean, at a minimum, he's going to spend, I think, some years behind bars for this. Because I do, too. If not the rest of his life. Well, he better. Let's hope. Like, that would be a real failure if he didn't get a serious, serious sentence for this. I honestly think he should get life. I just think as a doctor, you know, we you go you go to school for all these years. You're supposed to be, you know, be so educated and smart and be able yeah. to make, you know, the, the right decisions yes. for people's health. We trust we put our trust in doctors, right? Yes. Or we, you know, we have the illusion that we should put and our like, trust in them. It's not even like this was one person or a couple right. people. This is 25. Like that doesn't look good. So yeah, I think that the law should come down as hard as possible on his ass. I think it will. I don't think he's going to, he's definitely not going to be a doctor again. Uh, yeah. Well, that's, for that's sure. obvious. Yeah. God, let's hope not. Yeah. That's crazy stuff though. I mean, you hear, you hear more often than not, some of these doctors out there that are doing some yeah. really questionable shit. Yeah. Even possibly killing people. Yeah. No, I know what you're talking about. The nurse, wasn't there the nurse? Are you talking about the nurse at the nursing home that was like killing people? Yes, I think that, he worked at a nursing home. I can't remember. We saw a 2020 or something about it. What no, was, it happened like recently though. Recently? Yeah. Like this there year? was there was another one that was happening. That was a another another one. There's I think there's a lot of cases of this happening. Yeah. I saw someone sent me an article, like a more recent article of someone getting arrested for this. For wanting to like revive people and like bringing them to like a horrible event, like trying to, and they liked the rush. They claimed that they liked the rush of saving this, saving people, which I feel like I vaguely Josh and I this. looked it up yeah. and I couldn't find it. Like someone had sent it to me and I just read it and then lost it. But we'll I'm have sure to go it's find out there. It. Someone will find it. I know. Someone yeah. Guys, let it. us know if you want like some episodes about mm-hmm. doctors that are straight up like killers or criminals yeah. or that do really sketchy shit. Cause I think it's yeah. really interesting. And oftentimes I feel like, it doesn't, you know, this doesn't get to the masses as much as it should as far as being aware of who's taking care of your, you yes. know, not only your elderly, but also just your your own self. Like, who who are you really trusting with your health? And I mean, obviously not all medical yeah. professionals are <laughs> questionable, but I think you got to have a certain level of caution with anybody. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, really interesting stuff. The next uh, news story I wanted to bring up is NASA is officially opening the International Space Station to tourists. Yeah, this is cool. It's really cool. They will now allow regular citizens, not just certified astronauts on board the International Space Station. But the tickets for this are not cheap. NASA will be charging about $35,000 a night for the use of the station's facilities. And that's not what they would charge for the company. So... What's really happening is these aerospace companies, so Amazon's uh, space company, SpaceX, Elon Musk's company, um, Bigelow Aerospace, they are all building rockets and modular uh, spacecraft to travel to the ISS to deliver these tourists there. So they'll charge you a fee for the transportation, and then it's an additional thirty-five grand a night with a minimum stay of 30 days. Wow. So round, yeah, round trip, you're looking at over a million for a, for 30 days in the space station. I guess if you like had that kind of money, it might be worth it for like 
an experience like that. Like you can't get that anywhere else. Obviously no. I would love that. that would what a crazy experience. I wouldn't, I just feel like it would be so, I do not want to eat the space food. I don't want the, it looks like, so, I, gosh, we just were talking about last week about how hard it is on your body to go into space like what you have to go through mm-hmm. as an astronaut it is not easy it's not just like taking a trip to france no it's pretty intense i don't think i would do it josh and i always talk about this josh always wants to go to the moon space mars <laughs> he's like sign me up anywhere i'll go on a mission and then there's me i just like want to stay here and live our little life forever but it would wouldn't it be cool though to see like the sunrise on the earth? Of course from it would space? be cool. Of course it would be cool. But am I willing to take the risk? No, I have anxiety and I'm just a little bitch like that. And imagine the claustrophobia you would oh, feel yeah, on the no. space station as well as traveling there. You're you're in a tight little thing like I can't imagine like the nausea I would have. I have nausea oh, yeah. just here on Earth. Pulling I can't G's. imagine. No way. But could it be worth it to be weightless in space for 30 days? Eh, Maybe. I don't know. 30 days is a long time to be weightless. You got to be over it after like four hours. <laughs> and then you're stuck up there. It's not like you get up there and then you can just be like, all right, I've had enough. I'm done. Send me yeah. home. Yeah. There's no way to get home for another no. 30 days. So they're not going to send another rocket up here Yeah. <laughs> for another 30 days. So I don't know. I don't know, man. We'll see. It'll be interesting to see if like celebrities start doing it, though. Those would be the first people or really famous, you know, businessmen, things like that. Mm-hmm. Be, be like Justin Bieber's going to the space station. Wouldn't or, that be crazy? Like yeah. they do like a lot. I bet live streaming from space like celebrities will do streams. Well, they already do live stream from the space. Oh, station. I know. Yeah. I know they do. I've seen them do it at concerts and stuff, even like live stream down. But God, they did that at a U2 concert in like 2004. Um, but. It, I can see like influencers or like doing lives. Doing yeah. It. yeah, like Logan Paul going to space. Oh, let's hope. Oh, please no. Let's send like someone else, like a good old boy, like David Dobrik. <laughs> <laughs> that actually be, be a really good representation. That'd be super He'd entertaining. He'd probably make to watch a sweet him. vlog. Oh yeah, <laughs> the, the vlog squad up in the space station for thirty yeah. days. That'd be hilarious. <laughs> or they like yeah, or they do a re- big brother in the space station or something. Oh my gosh, can you imagine? But instead of getting evicted, you get thrown out into space. Yeah, you gotta to die. float your you way go back to the, to the abyss. <laughs> like the oh my gosh, that one movie. Like gravity, yeah. Yes. Get sucked away, just float away, and then you're yeah, yeah. No one's coming to get you. That's a scary thought. Yeah, if you've never seen Gravity in this movie, Gravity, this guy basically just like leaves the space station just like on his own and he's just it's a like body a, floating and he's just like listening to music on his little radio and he's yeah. like i'm just gonna enjoy the ride till i die basically till I suffocate yeah yeah how terrible and then Can you imagine around. the feeling of like just fl- like going off into space like oh my gosh you'd be so so scared oh can't imagine that. i don't think i would do it until like spaceships were big enough where you could kind of walk, freely walk around in them where you don't yeah. have to be like strapped in, yeah. you know, like how in, in sci-fi movies like star Wars and star mm-hmm. Trek and stuff, they are able to like walk around like yeah. it's no big deal. Just cruising around. Yeah. And they're walking like, aren't they supposed to be floating in those movies? They're always just walking around. Yeah, they are. They have some sort of anti-gravity <laughs> thing going on or something. Or they as have soon gravity as they in step there. out. They're just, yeah. Yeah. That's sci-fi for you, right? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I thought that was really interesting, though. So let's go ahead and get into Kurt Cobain, though, because this is a, a a lengthy one and there's a lot to, to cover. But before we do, I want to thank our sponsors for today. So Kurt Cobain, let's talk about Kurt Cobain. 
talk about his background. Where did he come from? Who is Kurt Cobain? If you don't know who he is, which there might be some people that don't know who Kurt Cobain is. I did not know that much about him before I started researching him for my original video. This was one of the first conspiracies I've covered on my channel like so long ago. And it, it really like it's crazy. My conspiracy videos just don't get a lot of views over time. Like initially when my subscribers get it, they'll get it. But then the After views that. are, yeah, like YouTube doesn't suggest conspiracy stuff to people at all. No, they hide it, in fact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. And this is one of those that gets really pushed under the surface. And if yes. you even talk about the conspiracy or try to make a documentary about it or anything like that, you can even have that shit shut down. Like, yeah, by Courtney. Right, right. Who uh, was his wife. Um, but anyway, let's let's talk a little bit about his background. So Kurt Cobain was born on February 20th, 1967 in Aberdeen, Washington. He was a Pisces, which is very fitting for him. Yes. One of the biggest things that people said about Kurt Cobain was that he was a, just a really chill dude. As far as he listened, he was like a listener. Everybody said he would just sit there and listen to you. Like he wouldn't be a deep guy, a deep guy, lots of Mm -hmm. things going on inside his head Mm -hmm. and, and deep thinking, really artistic, like a really genuine person, like a real real person and yeah he's such a pisces he really i know a lot of people don't believe in astrology but for me he's always the one i think about when i think of a pisces kurt cobain mm-hmm. he just i mean pisces also have a lot of addiction issues um they have a lot of life challenges issues in relationships mm-hmm. very emotional lives they can be have depression sure. like things like that they're very emotional they're water sign right mm-hmm. yeah um, which makes so, sense yeah yeah his birth charts is one of the most interesting celebrity birth charts out there so if you ever want to look just look it up it's pretty interesting but definitely is very fitting for him but his parents were wendy uh was his mother and donald was his father and uh they were pretty you know average family she was a cocktail waitress and his dad was a mechanic um and his family actually did have some musical background to it his maternal uncle uh, Chuck Freidenberg played in a band called the Beachcombers and his aunt Marie Earl played guitar and perform in bands throughout um, where they lived. And his great uncle Delbert had a career as an Irish tenor making an appearance in the 1930 film King of Jazz, which I think that's how it is for a lot of musicians like famous musicians come from some yeah. sort of musical background, mm-hmm. um, you know, in their early childhood that has influence on them to want to to play the guitar. But as a child, Kurt was described as being a happy and excitable uh, young boy. He also exhibited sensitivity and care, which is right along the line with the Pisces. Mm-hmm. But his his talent as an artist was evident from an early age, as he would draw his favorite characters from films and cartoons, such as Creature from the Black Lagoon and Donald Duck in his bedroom. Very artsy. Uh, Very. Did a lot of art and all the way up into his adult life. Uh, did mm-hmm. paintings. Very mm-hmm. abstract. Very like out there. Almost trippy. Just trippy a, type artwork yeah and he was such just a creative person in general because he was really into like writing as well mm-hmm. but he began developing interest in music from a very young age according to his aunt he began singing at age two and then at age four he started playing the piano and singing he liked to listen to artists like the ramones and the electric light orchestra and when he was nine years old his parents divorced and later on this divorce did have a profound effect on his life um which I, it, with anybody, I mean, divorce is hard for any, any family, any child, especially, especially a young child. It does have a, I mean, you're ripping apart, you know, the family unit. And 
I think it can create a lot of anger and resentment in, you know, a young child against your parents and, you know, kind of make you rebellious and stuff. Um, Definitely. It's painful. It's very painful. Like I went through it when I was over 21 and it was painful. I can't imagine how it'd be as a nine year old. Yeah. Yeah. When you're still trying to figure things out and yeah, all of a sudden your stable, somewhat stable situation becomes unstable. Right. And you know, if you don't have really good parents that are going to, you know, make sure and put you first and make sure you're okay and understand everything that's going on, it can be really, really detrimental. And, and that's kind of what happened with Kurt. Um, because he, his attitude kind of changed. He, he became pretty rude towards adults during, uh, his youth and he began actually bullying another boy at school. And because of this, his father decided to take him to a therapist who concluded that he would benefit from a single family and environment. And that's when on June 28th, 1979, uh, Kurt's mother granted full custody to his father. However, Kurt really started to rebel and this became overwhelming for his father. So he placed him in the care of family and friends, which I think is just a, I think that made it worse. I think it made it worse to take him away from his father. Yes, I do too. Um, and start bouncing him around, you know, just mm-hmm. because. It's hard to say from like an outsider's perspective yeah, on a family, but. It's true. It might have been bad enough to do that. Yeah. But that's when Kurt actually started living with a born again Christian family. Um, Jesse, a uh, family friend, Jesse Reed. And soon Kurt became a devout Christian and regularly attended church services, which obviously. Later on, he renounced Christianity um, and came, became pretty, you know, anti-religion. But that that was impactful on him, and he, I would say, was a spiritual guy um, throughout his whole life. In some sense, obviously, with a band name like Nirvana, which we'll talk about more. But in school, Kurt Cobain became friends with a gay student at school and suffered bullying from peers who assumed that he was also gay. Actually, in an interview, he had said that he liked being associated with a gay identity because he did not like people and people would leave the gay kids alone. Yeah. And so they left him alone. Yeah. And he just didn't, he wanted like nothing to do with anybody. He was still like isolated. Remember at one point he talked about how he even like thought he would end up being like a, he thought everyone thought he would end up shooting up a school or something. Like Mm -hmm. he was like bullied. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, he was. He was kind of that kid that never like kind of fit in and really didn't know where he belonged. Like, yeah. And so he became kind of antisocial and like wanted to stay away from everyone. Mm-hmm. Understandably. Yeah. During his second year in high school, uh, Kurt began living with his mother back in Washington. And two weeks before graduation, he dropped out of high school after realizing he did not have enough credits to graduate. And then at that point, Kurt was kicked out of his house after failing to find employment. And so he started staying with friends and sometimes even resorted to sleeping in the streets. So like from high school, it got pretty, pretty rough for him. You know, he was kind of just aimlessly trying to figure things out. Obviously, he had his love for music. And that's really what he latched on to was that love for music. Because after he had dropped out in high school in early 1985, he formed the band Fecal Matter. Oh, <laughs> cool name, right? Interesting. That's gross. But it was that evolution of, you know, getting into a band and seeing what that's like and really probably finding his identity in music and, you know, finding other like minded individuals mm-hmm. um, where, you know, he eventually went on to meet his, you know, his bandmate from Nirvana, Chris Novoselic, who was also really into punk rock. And the two of them practiced playing music together. And Kurt 
eventually was convinced to create a band with him. So once Chris joined the band, they got their first drummer, Aaron Burkhardt, and that's when Nirvana was formed in 1987. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that he named his band Nirvana. Um, Yeah, I love that. Because even though he wasn't like into Christianity, you, you know that he got a taste of spirituality through that. But he was very interested in Buddhist philosophy and yes. uh, Jainism, which is kind of a uh, denomination of Buddhism. Yeah. Um, or, yeah. Which, if you don't know what nirvana means, uh, nirvana in Buddhism is a transcendent state in which there is neither suffering, desire, nor sense of self. Yeah. Like, it's like reaching a state of nirvana in, when you're a monk. You're rele- right. You're released from the effects of karma yes. and the cycle of death and rebirth. It's the final goal of Buddhism. It's like the white aura we yeah. were talking about in the last vlog. I thought that was that's like one of my favorite things about you know Nirvana and Kurt Cobain is the fact that they yes like it wasn't just like oh that's a cool hipster name to no. call their band. It's, they were deep. They're very deep, and their music had some very deep you know messages to it too. Mm-hmm. Which I mean, I, I was never, I never really listened to Nirvana. I'd even know who they were, probably because their music is pretty, you know, explicit. Yeah, your parents so I wasn't allowed you to from that, listen to it. Because <laughs> like my first intro into the the punk rock kind of uh, rock genre was Green Day. Yeah, um, Me which too, a lot probably. of us was Green Day. Yeah, uh, when I was like in middle, like seventh or eighth yeah, grade, I, I started like listening to Green Day. Fourth, fifth grade, American Idiot time. Whenever oh, that no, came it was out. earlier than that. Yeah, it was like yeah. sixth grade or so. I think American Idiot came out when we were in sixth grade. I remember when that album was released. One of the best albums for sure. Yeah, it was in sixth grade. You're right. I do remember that. No, September 2004. Which obviously Nirvana was way before that. But I never. And that was the thing is I I feel like I missed out on a lot of like really good rock music from, you know, the 90s and late 80s uh, like Nirvana. Mm -hmm. Um I mean, my personal taste is I'm not really into like punk rock or grunge. Like that's yeah. their, their sound is like kind of grunge. Right. Rock. Yeah. I'm not a super big like fan of Nirvana music. There's a couple songs I like, but like, I mean, of yeah. course smells like teen spirit. I mean, yeah, everyone, everybody knows that one. Yep. I had that on the rock classics band. And, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yep. I used to remember playing the drums to that on rock band. That yeah. was a good one. Yeah. Durner. But I can definitely respect it. It's good music better than some of these mumble rappers these days oh my god <laughs> better Damn. than a little pump jeez so yeah they started nirvana and nirvana they started you know working on music and eventually they got dave grohl to join as their yep. drummer which i didn't really know that i i don't know why i never put the two together but yeah dave grohl ended up being their drummer later on um and in 1991 their major debut album was never mind was released and the, that's where the song smells like teen spirit was their top single and that's kind of how they went mainstream that song like blew up yep and still i think that gets uh streams today <laughs> but yeah since their debut nirvana sold over 25 million albums in the u.s alone and over 80 million worldwide they really were kind of pioneers of the you know alternative rock yes uh scene and i think the net worth of of kurt cobain alone is like 400 million or something oh yeah it's some ridiculous he had amount. a lot of money towards the end of his life like a lot his estate was huge yeah yeah let's see let me look up what he was worth i think it's 450 million but because of his music and because of just how profound it was and how well it sold 
you know, after after his death, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He got all sorts well, of achievements. And, okay, so I think his net worth's grown a ton, but at the time of his death, it was fifty million. Fifty. Yeah, people's net worth grows a ton when they die young, yeah. or you know, fam- that always happens. But I saw an estimate; it was like four hundred million. Um, That's a lot. Yeah, crazy. But he didn't show it at all. He lived no. in a really, really regular ass house and regular lived a really normal life. He didn't like flashy stuff. Well, especially before he met Courtney. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And didn't she like buy like a fancy car at one point? He made her take Alexis, it back. Yeah. yeah. And she was the one that wanted like the nice lake house yep. up in Washington that they, yep. they had uh-huh. kind of the mansion or whatever. Yeah. And she was the one that wanted to, you know, I'm getting ahead of myself, but she really elevated their lifestyle because he was just yeah. such a simple dude. Did yeah. not care. They would like trash their he guitars. Was very and low stuff. key. Yeah. Well, he, he had no attachment to material. No, money stuff. didn't mean anything Mm-mm. to him. Literally nothing. He thought it was like foolish that people cared so much about money, actually. It really bothered him. So one of the aspects too that is hugely a part of his life is obviously the drug use. Um it it's been I guess said that he started smoking marijuana, I think at like age 13 That's and so not young. that that led him to other things, but it could have, um, especially that young when you're yeah. not, you know, mature enough to really understand it. And mm-hmm. so use responsibly. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, he did a lot of drugs, um, a lot of different things and primarily heroin was his, uh, sort of drug of choice, but he did a lot of stuff. He did LSD, he did a ton of LSD. Um, he did a lot of other types of, of psychedelics and and things like that. But getting into the nineties, um, in January, 1990, this is when Kurt meets a woman named Courtney love at a nightclub in Portland. Cause Courtney was actually a musician in another band that was performing yeah. there with her, uh, uh, where he was performing in Nirvana is this before she was in hole. Yes. Uh, okay. I don't know for sure. Hole? I, okay, so I don't know just... how many bands she's had. Um, yeah. I don't really care yeah. how many bands she's had. I don't really care. About she was in day. a band. And that's where they met. They met like kind of like afterwards. And mm-hmm. it was, it's been said that she kind of pursued him. Right. And he was like, yeah, not into what her are you doing? Like, I'm not really like looking for that. Like, yeah, but she was very persistent with him. Yeah. Very forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He would actually like break off dates uh, with her and really tried to uh, distance himself from her at the beginning. But this was also around the time when, he was really starting to get into heroin use. Um, And the reason for this that he says is because he suffered from chronic bronchitis uh, and intense physical pain due to an undiagnosed chronic stomach condition. Yeah. He had really bad stomach problems and it helps with pain. It's a painkiller. It's an an opioid. opioid. Yeah. So when painkillers aren't enough, people go to heroin. And I mean, if, and yeah, I mean, if anything is going to take your pain away, it's going to be heroin. um, But at a cost. Yeah. I can't imagine what that's like. And so his first experience with heroin occurred sometime in 1986. Um, it was administered to him by a local drug dealer in Tacoma, Washington, who had previously supplied him with oxycodone and aspirin. Um, so painkiller. So it probably was like, hey, try these. And then those didn't work for his stomach condition. So he jumped up to heroin. Um, and by the end of the 1990s, his use developed into a full-fledged addiction. Yeah. Um, which... Heroin's one of those drugs. I mean, I've never done heroin, but yeah. I know that's extremely addictive and it will it will suck the life from you. Like it mm-hmm. completely changes you. It completely 
can send you down a dark path to serious drug to get off of. Yeah. Very hard to get off of. Mm -hmm. I've have several family members who are addicted to heroin, sadly, and it's just brutal, man. I mean, seeing people try everything and it's so addicting. It's so intense. It completely takes over your life. It's supposed to be like the craziest high you can possibly have, but it's like, at what cost do you want that high? And once you do it once, it's, you can hook you. Mm -hmm. So don't do heroin. (laughs) Yeah, please. Yeah. So as time goes on, the two are obviously bonded, not only over drug use, but music, most importantly, like they were both really into music. And I'm sure that was attractive for Kurt with Courtney, you know, being a musician as well. And so... They got to know each other and they started getting closer and closer. And by the late 1991, the two were often together and, and would bond through their drug use as well through heroin. Um, there was that one clip. I, I tried to find it. I couldn't find it. Um, it's it's in some, I don't know if it's a movie or a documentary or something, but there's a clip of them kind of like playing around with each other when they're just like high as a kite. Um, yes. Yeah. I can't remember. I'm trying to remember I feel like it was when they were in a hotel room at like some, like in Italy or something. Was it from their Rome trip? Was that what it was? From? I don't think so. Here, I'll try to find it. Yeah. See if you can find it. Cause I Googled it and I, I could not find the clip. Um, cause it's, it's kind of interesting. It definitely gives you kind of a perspective on their relationship and how they were when they were, you know, using drugs together. Oh, <laughs> I found like, it. Oh, you did? Yeah. Why don't, why don't you interview us? Kurt and Courtney. Sassy too. How does it feel to be fast? <laughs> like in the fast lane. At the height of their drug abuse. <laughs> Damn, if I wasn't so needle sick, I'd be on tour with Guns N' Roses right now. <laughs> I mean, Axel would be whooping it up, snake dancing across the Snake dancing across the stage to go singing Nazareth songs. But I'm too goddamn music, man. Are you fucked up, baby? I did do heroin when I was pregnant, and then I stopped. And I knew she would be fine. Come on! Yeah, so they're, they're definitely oh my doing gosh, heroin. Did you hear that quote at the end? Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Which most people are pretty sure she lied about being yeah, off heroin. Like she probably they, did so, yeah. heroin the whole time she was pregnant. Yeah, so... I knew she would be fine. Oh, my God. Yeah, that, I mean, that's... That's what it'll do to you, man. I mean, they're so fucked up in that. Yep. 
so through all of that, they, you know, they were dating and doing drugs and living life and they decided to get married. Um, they got married in uh, Hawaii, actually, Waikiki Beach on February 24th, 1992. Um, mm-hmm. And he was wearing like a green, like checkered, oh. like pajamas, I think. It was either pajamas or, yeah, it was green flannel pajamas. Wow. At their wedding. Nice. Hell yeah. And they, you know, they were both said that they were going to try to like make a pact to get sober before they had their, cause she was pregnant yeah. to have her daughter. Yeah. Um, and many people think that she, she definitely did not get sober. No. Before her daughter. Cause later on we find out in life she's, she had addiction issues as well. She did. Frankie. Francis. Francis. Sorry. <laughs> not Frank. Frankie. Francis. Francis. <laughs> And at this time, like Nirvana is just like surging. It's super popular. And after the wedding, though, Kurt went into kind of a funk. Yes. Um, he had no desire to tour. Yep. And just like a music funk specifically. Yeah, like he yeah. was really feeling disconnected from the music industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I'm sure it was starting to put a lot of pressure on him to yeah. like oftentimes the music industry will try to change your music yes. in order to put out the, the music more they want. popular you popular popular (laughs) the more popular you get though the more people's hands are going to be in your work and trying to shape you and put pressure on you and obviously it's just such a cutthroat industry that it's filled with a lot of like snakes and stuff and i think it was really just getting to him all the you know fakeness of it because he was so real Mm -hmm. that it was just overwhelming for him i think he wanted to like take a step back Mm-hmm. It was a music and art was how Kurt Cobain expressed himself yes. to the world Absolutely. and to himself. And, mm-hmm. and when Such you take pisces. away a true artist's form of expression, it can really send them into a spiral mm-hmm. as we've and seen with a like lot of artists. they don't have control of yeah, their own absolutely. art. So it, that's exactly what it did. Pretty much the, um, Courtney said they went on a binge um, in 92, we did a lot of drugs. We got pills. Then when we went down to Alphabet City and Kurt wore a hat and I wore a hat, we copped some dope. Then we got high and went to SNL. After that, I did heroin for a couple months. So, yeah, I mean, they were. They were high a lot of the time. But their daughter, actually, Francis Cobain, was born on August 18th, 1992. And the couples had made intermittent attempts to getting clean and in March 1992, they enrolled in separate detox programs. So, but within days, they would check out and dive back into their addictions because heroin is just so fucking hard to get off of. Um, a lot of people relapse. Kurt had briefly considered quitting Nirvana so he could focus on fatherhood, but he didn't. And despite his good intentions, he couldn't quit his drug addicts either. So his drug addiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So prior to a performance at the New Music Seminar in New York City in July 1993, Kurt Cobain suffered a heroin overdose. Rather than calling for an ambulance, Courtney injected Cobain with uh, naloxone to bring him out of his unconscious state, which then Kurt proceeded to perform with Nirvana, giving the public every indication that nothing was wrong, which is crazy. I can't even imagine like overdosing and then like going out there and giving a show. Dude, you know how many celebrities do that though? Like try to keep that shit under wraps? Yeah. Well, who is it? Demi Lovato had like a, she had a heroin overdose and had to like, well, they didn't act like everything was fine, but everything's back to normal now. I kind of thought she would like take a step back from the music industry and stuff, but 
She's had multiple heroin overdoses and they do try to hide it at first. But TMZ always finds out. Yeah, I know. Fucking TMZ. Yeah. But I'm sure, especially in these days, like those rock stars, everyone was doing it. Oh, like there's yeah. so many overdoses oh, yeah. we probably don't even know about. Oh yeah. And so much drugs. It was drugs, easier to hide too. it back yeah. then too. It was easier to get away with and hide for sure. Mm-hmm. So later on in March 1993, the band was actually on tour in Munich, Germany. And on March 1st, Kurt got really sick and ended up being diagnosed with bronchitis and severe laryngitis. So he was like set to perform on tour there and stuff. He went to the doctors. They were like giving him throat spray, like trying to get his voice back. Oh, yeah. And as an artist, that's like the worst thing that could happen to you. Yeah. Stressful. So he ended up flying to Rome the next day for medical treatment. And Courtney came with him. Uh, This was March 3rd, 1994. And that same day, Kurt ended up in a coma at the hospital. And um, this is where Courtney said this was like a suicide attempt. Yes. Um, He had accidentally taken too many painkillers due to him having, you know, the the throat issues of influenza and fatigue. And so he actually went into a coma, which... Again, there's like conflicting reports about mm-hmm. whether he actually swallowed f- 50 pills or whatever. I think it was. Uh, well, what was her story that they went out and saw stuff in Rome all day? They had this like super romantic day and she was or he was hoping they would have sex at the end of the day or something. According yeah, to her. Yeah. And they came back and probably shot up or did something. Mm-hmm. And she got too high and passed out and he got so upset about her doing that, that after this perfectly good day, she tried to seem like he was so emotionally unstable that he had this great day. But then at the end he decided to take all these pills. Right. Um, which it's very possible that he just overdosed like on accident and she's Mm -hmm. trying to make it look like a suicide. She's trying to tie it to, to a suicide Mm -hmm. attempt versus it just being an accidental overdose when it was happening. It was after he had passed that she really started pushing that. Yeah. Which is, the interesting part about this whole narrative about uh, him committing suicide, because then a few days later on March 18th, 1994, Courtney and Kurt had a domestic uh, domestic dispute, which escalated into near disaster after police or officers arrived at the scene, which were called by Courtney. Of course, she told them that her husband had locked himself in a room with a 38 caliber revolver and said he was going to kill himself. Hmm. So that's all. That's another one that we have never later. figured out the true story about what happened with that. Yeah, I mean, we do know the cops came there yes. again. This is her interpretation of what's happening. With right, Kurt, you though. have to believe a lot of what she says, which is hard to believe her when she's. Yeah, especially yeah. later on when you when you find out, you know, more mm-hmm. about her and and all this. But the police officers confiscated the gun and three others, along with a bottle of various unidentified pills. Later that night, Kurt told them that he had actually been planning to take his own life. He said, no, I wasn't like, what are you talking about? So she's kind of take, she's literally like blowing out of proportion or escalating it from him just like overdosing because he's taking a bunch of pills versus actually trying to end his life because he's suicidal. She's taking it there. So because of all this, on March 25th, roughly 10 friends, including bandmates Chris Novoselic and Pat Smear, Nirvana manager John Silva Billig, longtime friend Dylan Carlson, Courtney and Goldberg gathered at Kurt's home on Seattle's Lake Washington Boulevard to take a different approach with a new intervention counselor. As a part of the intervention, Courtney threatened to leave Kurt. And Smear and Novoselic said they would break up the band Nirvana if he didn't check into rehab. 
After a tense five-hour session in the two-day process, Kurt uh, went to the basement with Smear where they rehearsed some new material. Courtney had hoped to coax Kurt into flying to Los Angeles with her so that the couple could check into rehab together. Instead, she wound up on the plane with the manager in the end of, uh, at the end of the first day of the intervention, which the whole time all this happened, the couple does have a nanny, right? Right. Um, nicknamed Callie. Yes. His real name is uh, Michael it, Do It, right? But yeah, Michael mm-hmm. Do It. He looks like such a strange character for being a nanny. Like, <laughs> he's probably the last person I'd be like, oh, yeah, that looks like a nanny. Yeah. When I first was researching about this and I heard there's this nanny guy involved, I pictured like a. I don't know. I pictured like a manny, like, you know, mm-hmm. like a nice man, like the guy in this is us. Like, yeah, exactly. Manny. Like, yeah, that's what I yeah. thought. And then he was like this grungy looking yeah, tattooed. Yeah. Like, I'm pretty sure his gauges. Yeah. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but it was kind of an interesting choice for a nanny. Mm-hmm. So, Especially when you have money to go get like the best nanny yeah. you could possibly. Yeah. It seemed like they're just like, yo, dude, you want to be our nanny? Yeah. Or, like some friend they had. Yeah. They had some connection to him. I can't remember. He was like their friend, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was a personal friend. But when Courtney leaves to go to Los Angeles without Kurt, she later on says she regrets leaving Kurt alone because this is when things kind of start unfolding. So after a stop in San Francisco, San Francisco, Courtney flew to Los Angeles. And on the morning of the 26th, she checked into the Peninsula Hotel in Beverly Hills and began an outpatient program to detox from tranquilizers. Back in Seattle, Kurt stopped by Dylan Carlson's his friend's condominium on March 30th to ask for a gun because Kurt said there were trespassers on his property. And this is where Dylan said, this is the whole like going to get the gun with his friend Dylan. And Dylan Mm -hmm. said at this time, he seemed normal. We'd been talking. Plus I'd loaned him guns before Dylan believes Kurt didn't want to buy the shotgun himself because he was afraid the police would confiscate it since they had taken his other firearms after uh, the domestic dispute that he had had earlier, which makes sense. I mean, you know why he wanted because the gun was actually the shotgun was registered under Dylan and not Kurt, but it was Kurt's gun. Um, so that's when the two of them they went to the gun store and they bought the six pound Remington 20 gauge shotgun and a box of ammunition, ammunition, uh, which Kurt gave Dylan in cash. So Dylan said that he was going out to LA. And it seemed kind of weird that he was buying the shotgun before he was leaving. So I offered to hold on to it until he got back. Kurt, however, insisted on keeping the shotgun himself. The police believe that Kurt dropped the weapon off at his home and then uh, left Seattle to check himself into rehab. Um, Smear and a Gold Mountain employee met Kurt at the Los Angeles airport and drove him to the Exodus Recovery Center um, in Marina del Rey, California. So that was the rehab facility where he checked in. And what's weird is that the rehab facility was unaware of Kurt's history of depression and alleged prior attempts at suicide yeah so he was he was just like just an, another dude coming in mm-hmm. um checking himself in for rehab they didn't know about all of all the, yeah the prior events that had had happened and mm-hmm. whether they were suicide attempts or not we don't know but kurt spent two days at this 20 bed clinic and on april 1st he called courtney who was still at the peninsula and he quote unquote said courtney no matter what happens i want you to know that you made a really good record uh, Courtney later told the Seattle and that's according newspaper. to her though right, right this is according to her this is okay her doesn't recollection that sound very it? weird that she's like and then he told me I did great like yeah yeah and so this isn't the only case of like her saying that he said something or did something that's just like thing 
basically him acting like the sun shines out of her ass, Mm -hmm. which in reality, we find out they were on the verge of divorce. Like they were, we'll get more into that, but domestic disputes, dude, they were like fighting it out. Yeah. Yeah. They were getting divorced. Like Kurt wanted a divorce. Mm -hmm. That is true. Mm -hmm. So it's very odd. Like, why would he be like talking so highly of her all the time? And it always comes from fucking her. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what she says is that, um, he told her that she made a really good record and she said, what do you mean? And he said, just remember no matter what, I love you. And that was the last time Courtney spoke to her husband, according to her was that phone call. So apparently while Kurt was in detox, some of his friends would come visit him and all of them would say that there was no indication to them that he was in a negative or suicidal state of mind. That's like one of the most important things is like, I mean, I guess not everybody ha- has signs of like committing suicide. It's not, it, it can be a split impulsive decision to do that. Oftentimes there is signs, but, but there yes, is, yeah. there definitely are cases of people who everyone around them is like, I had no idea. Right. People are good at hiding pain. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when you don't want to like have to answer questions about it or deal with it or talk about it. Like, why would you tell people you're struggling or there's not always signs. And there was, there was instances where he would tell people, that he wanted to kill himself. Right. But in the past. But it was like in, in reference to his stomach pain. Right. He was saying it's it makes pain. me want to kill myself. Like, and then once they got that figured out, which they did, he saw doctors and they got his whole stomach issues figured out. And he, he did an interview with MTV where he was like, It's all back to normal. And I'm like so happy. Mm-hmm. I'm so great, so grateful to not God, my Yeah, because like he finally he had so like years of having issues yes. getting a doctor to prescribe Couldn't the right eat anything medication. was like barely eating. Like I've said so many times I have a lot of health issues, but I tell Josh all the time. I'm really glad I don't have stomach issues. I have serious compassion for people with stomach problems, like chronic stomach problems. It's it sounds just terrible. Oh, it's horrible, man. Oh, I can't it's even painful. imagine. I, when I get cramps in my stomach once in a while, yeah. I'm like, this is the worst. Right. And it's not even nearly what other people have. Like and they have it all the over. time. Oh God. I couldn't even imagine. Like, yeah. Or every time you eat, like no matter what you put in your body makes you sick. There are people like that. And then they like lose a ton of weight. He had lost a ton of weight. He mm-hmm. was really sick. Mm-hmm. So that's what he was referring to. And he said, kill himself. But mm-hmm. he never, he, according to his friends, he never made a statement that I'm like, I'll kill myself or I want to kill myself. But he definitely doesn't. I will say, I don't see Kurt Cobain and think he would never kill himself because he is such a deep and emotional person. He's very in his thoughts. He, I wouldn't completely rule it out either. Like, it wouldn't shock me if someone like him did that, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not like he was the you know super positive guy like he definitely did have all these problems it would make sense it did i mean he did have a very turbulent past and just his you know some of his childhood into his adult and obviously the drug use and and just the the way he was dude you can hear him in interviews he was so in his head about everything like thinking about everything like people that are like that where they overthink everything and people bother them and the world bothers them so much they get like they just it's it's a lot to deal with emotionally in sure, your head to sure. like handle mm-hmm. and could have benefited from a therapist for sure. Definitely. Definitely. But I think that there's a chance that Courtney may have realized this, you know, people wouldn't be shocked if Kurt Cobain ended up either overdosed or killing himself. Well, and that's the thing is like bandmates, some of the people that are closest to him to this day, 
believe mm-hmm. he committed suicide and that the whole murder conspiracy is just like crazy as like yeah and they might be right it might be crazy i mean the thing is is that courtney love might she i mean you know what courtney love is a little crazy let's just all Mm -hmm. whether she did this or not she's still a little crazy so it definitely leaves you thinking like there's enough here but it could also just be like her bizarro behavior that gives you all these reasons to think well and i mean i mean there's a lot more evidence we haven't even gotten into any of the evidence really yet but yeah and i mean when you look at Courtney Love too, and you look at her past, it's also very turbulent. I can't yes. remember the exact details, but she went through a lot as well. Yeah, um, she had a really rough past mm-hmm. and had a lot of things happen that really influenced her behavior. Parents separating and living with different people over time, and yeah, which I mean, and a lot of that goes into the music too. Like that type of music is is a lot of times very angry and very, you know rough you know right. it's it's kind of got some anger and passion behind it mm-hmm. um that mm-hmm. there it's a way of expressing that you know the things that they went through the pain that they feel and obviously the heroin i mean heroin's going to change your brain too mm-hmm. as dr phil likes to say you know it changes yeah, like well your, it is it, it yeah. changes your brain chemistry some yeah. drugs do yeah. change your brain it can completely like rewire your pathways and things like that so mm-hmm. it's very possible that it couldn't you know i the reason i'm saying this because you said she could be she's crazy like she could be yeah. an element of crazy yeah and she's doing stuff from a young age a lot of yeah mm-hmm. a lot of different things so it's yeah yeah it makes it makes you know the suicide thing does make make sense um but while kurt was in rehab he was only there for like a day or two and and literally like i think it was a night or two in he decides to leave and climbs over a six foot high fence to escape the facility. And that's when he went to the airport and then flew back to Seattle. Wow, dude, she's a cancer moon and son. God, what a Ooh. crazy emotional relationship oh, they must man. have had. No that's wonder. Intense. Very intense. Very intense. They're like riding this roller coaster together where they're yep. like up and down and mm-hmm. crying and happy. And yeah, God. So th- this is at this point, this is where Kurt goes missing, uh, quote unquote. His um, moon, by the way, is a cancer too. Mm-hmm. Pisces, cancer, cancer, cancer. Lot of Whoa, water. Yeah. Yeah. So. It's just an emotional tornado. Yeah, pretty much. God. Pretty much. And this is this is when things start getting a little weird. So Kurt leaves, goes back to Seattle, and goes missing. Courtney hasn't heard from him. And literally the next day after he goes missing and refuses to talk to anybody, Courtney cancels his credit cards and then hires private investigators to track him down. Yeah. But the strange thing is, is she like sends private investigators to go look for him, but she doesn't go herself. She's like out of town working. She said she's busy with work. So yeah, she, she had wasn't, a work obligation, she said. Yeah, and so she couldn't go find her husband? Like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. That's such a lie. Especially when you know the state of mind he's in. Yeah, like, if no. he escapes There's from There's no a, way I'd be like, oh, yeah, Josh is missing, but I got to work, so I'm going to send someone else to look for his ass. Yeah. <laughs> That's so weird. That has always bothered me so much. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very suspicious, and, that, and this is where things get kind of fishy. Like, it kind of gets... Sketchy as far as her decisions uh, that she makes, because not only that, but then Kurt's mom, Wendy, actually files a missing persons report in her name um, because she said she had been afraid for her son's safety. But didn't you say you you had a tidbit on that? Yes, she she filed this report in 
the mom's name. Courtney filed it though. Mm-hmm. Her mom, his mom, never filed a missing persons report on him. So that made people think like it was reported in the news. Kurt Cobain's mom files missing report on right, him. Right. So that looks like you know people are taking it more seriously when his mom said that, and it, it takes another person into the whole situation. It's not just Courtney that assumes he's missing and stuff. Right. Right. Why would you file it under? Hit her his mom's name when you're married to him. There's right. zero reason to do that, unless you're setting something up. Yeah, exactly. Or setting a plan into motion. And she never did. She, the mom never even knew he was like missing. Yeah, well, she might have known. I don't know if they like talked, but she didn't file the report. Because this is when they really started spinning the story about the suicide, or really tr- pumping that up. You know. Yes. They told the police that Kurt might be suicidal and suggest that they look for him in a particular three-story brick building described as a location for nar- narcotics. Um, and this was on April 4th when uh, the missing persons report is filed. Um, and the police believe that Kurt wandered around town with no clear agenda in his final days, though they suspect he stopped by a gun shop to buy more rounds for ammunition. Neighbors say they spotted Kurt in a park near his house during this period looking ill and wearing uh, a really thick jacket. Kurt is also believed to have spent a night at his summer home in a nearby uh, carnation with an unidentified friend, which a lot of this is like kind of unconfirmed based upon what other people have said. Like, we don't really know exactly what he was doing. I don't believe um, in his final days, um, which is really, really interesting. Um, Because I mean, it's like, well, how did she know that he was going to escape and go back to Seattle though? Like if we were trying to spin a conspiracy of, he was murdered. But yeah, that's very true. That's a, a point where I'm like, how would she know to set a plan into motion of setting up uh, a suicide? So the, the conspiracy in simple terms is that they staged a suicide overdose for a murder. It was like a murder mm-hmm. for hire type thing where they staged it to look like he just committed suicide um, and took a bunch of heroin, which is very possible. Yeah, but how would how would she have known if it was a murder for hire? How would she have known he was going to do that? Or as well, she could have been having this in plan for yeah, a long time. That's what time. the private investigator said. Yeah, said like that, she could have had someone waiting around, following his every move, and they were just kind of keeping tabs on him, waiting for a good time. And then this was a good time, especially if right, she had people yeah, out looking true. for him. Someone could have easily found him, spotted him, followed what he was doing. True. True. Like it dev it's not impossible. It's not right. like this no, no, no. this cancels her out. No, not at all. It's a window of opportunity that opens mm-hmm. up and maybe she was ready. Yeah. It seemed like mm. she kind of knew the marriage was going downhill. And you know, she forced her way into their marriage yeah, in the beginning. Yeah. Like it seems like she's kind of always What were her intentions, you think? Yeah, I don't mm-hmm. let let your mind wonder. I mean, I think I think she possibly married him for the the boost in fame and yeah, and I think obviously the money. Yeah. And she's one of those people, though, that has a huge ego and wanted to be kind of top dog. You know, I think she yes. wanted to be the more famous one. And I think it was hard for her that Kurt was more famous than she was. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you think about the whole conspiracy, like wouldn't she she wanted to surpass him. And one way to do that is for him to be gone. Right. Plus, she is married to him and inherits this yeah. um, estate of his. Yeah, and which we're totally speculating right We're now. speculating, yeah, exactly. I mean, we don't know for sure any of this. There's, I mean, we don't really know for sure 
much of anything as far as his death and, and all of this because none of it's been released. So Kurt wanders around and this is when uh, we get to April 6th. People have no idea where he is. No one's heard from him. Again, Tom fly, Tom the PI flies up to Seattle to start looking, hired by Courtney uh, to go look for him. And that's when they actually go up and meet or search the house with uh, one of Kurt's friends, Dylan Carlson. So the PI and uh, Dylan Carlson go and basically go into the house and look for him um, because they're, they're trying to see if he's there and they search the entire house and they don't find any trace of him. And Dylan mentioned while they were searching that the house was very clean. And then 20 hours later, they go back and search the house again and this time they found a note for Kurt written yeah, by the male so nanny. This is the weirdest thing. The nanny wrote, quote unquote, Kurt, I can't believe you managed to be in the house without me noticing. You're a fucking asshole for not calling Courtney and at least letting her know that you're okay. She's in a lot of pain, Kurt. And this morning she had another incident and now she's in the hospital again. She's your wife and she loves you and you have a child together. Get it together to at least tell her you're okay or she's going to die. It's not fair, man. Do something now. So the whole fact. So again, there's another a lot of suspicion. Poor Courtney, another. I mean, mm-hmm. it's very like. Eh. I don't know. It's the this whole note thing is is kind of weird to me that he would do that. Yeah. Why would he? Why is he so involved in their relationship? And you know what? Or was this a setup? I mean, was he a huge friend of Courtney's? Didn't seem like it. Like, how often did she talk to Michael DeWitt? Yeah, I don't think they were, like, uber close or anything. I don't know. So when Tom and Dylan find this note, Tom immediately thought this note was suspicious, and he believed that Courtney had told Michael to write this note. And there's a conversation between... because it wasn't there before. Right, yeah, when they were there the first time. So when they come back to search, all of a sudden there's that note there. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's a conversation actually uh, between Tom and Rosemary Carroll, the attorney, talking about how neither of them believe that Nanny wrote the note, actually. When I first found the letter, I had no doubt that Callie had written it, but it still looked strange to me. You know, the letter just didn't make sense. It, it looked funny. Right, well, it could still, I mean, it was not written, but it wasn't a sincere letter. Right, yeah, it I mean, sounded it was, like it I was... I thought Callie wrote it because he knew that Kurt was dead. Yeah, exactly. That's what I felt. I don't think that he was out in Carnation, and I don't know I don't, why. Yeah. I don't know why Courtney's trying so hard to convince people that he was, and he's she's got the police convinced because they they're saying that that's where they think he was for a couple of days. You know, you know what's amazing is that we can do this. You know. So yeah, that's that's interesting. That even you know even they you know they really think that's suspicious. That just the tone of it and stuff does kind of sound like. He assumed that Kurt was already dead, maybe. But yeah. I don't know. I don't know. So it is weird. It was definitely weird. Because yeah. that's the whole thing with this is the PI and what he finds out with, with this whole, you know, yeah. Kurt going missing and stuff is very different from what the police are saying happens with, with Kurt. Yeah. And that whole documentary, I feel like a lot of people have seen that and like it just rubs them the wrong way. Because like you have to, you have to take a lot of what the officer says for like, if you don't believe him, then you're not going to believe this theory. If you don't take him seriously, because right. you have to believe a lot of what he says to like, totally, you know, and I honestly hate that documentary. Like it has a lot of good information and good information in there, but 
they have like all these reenactments of everything. Like they literally act out looking for everything and looking in Kurt's house. It's like so tacky. I hate it. But I mean, that's the hard thing with any of the crime like documentaries, though, is because you have yeah. to question their intention for it. Like, are they really yeah. just trying to bring truth to the case or are right. they trying to make money off of it and right. try to make a compelling uh, movie? But I mean, they're not the first ones to make the documentaries true, like the, that other guy. I yeah. Can't remember he, he made Biggie and Tupac documentary too. the uh, older Broomfield guy. is his yeah. name. Yeah. It's like in Nick Broomfield. I don't know. It's just like, like he's running around with the camera in the nineties pretty yeah. much. Yeah. yeah. He made some good <laughs> shit though. He did. Better than balls, the new stuff. For sure. At least it was real, not acted out bullshit. Yeah. But anyway, it's interesting. If you're interested in this one, I would definitely, I would recommend watching both and see what you think. Which it's called Soaked in Bleach. Soaked in Bleach. And then what's the Kurt Cobain one? The other one? Uh, Kurt and Courtney or something. Kurt and Courtney, yeah. Yeah, like it's on that. Netflix. And then uh, the other one is on YouTube and it's on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. So they go through the house twice, don't find them. And, they're, and so they're driving around town, checking various locations where they knew Kurt would go. Uh, oftentimes we meet drug dealers and again, nothing. Now this is when we get to Friday, April 8th, 1994. And this is when Kurt Cobain is actually found dead in his house by an electrician named Gary Smith, who was there to install some security lighting when he noticed a motionless body laying on the floor through the doors. And, and there's so a, he just to like kind of explain this, like, cause everyone's confused about how, Michael wouldn't house. have seen him right because he's not in the house. It's no. like in the garage. They had like a guest house or like a sun room, it's a, a very small room. little room on top of their their garage. Mm-hmm. So he was up there. And so according to Courtney and Michael, he Michael had gone in the house, written that note and shit, you know, and. You know, no one he, knew where he was. Yeah. He was still missing. He didn't see him because he w- he wasn't in the actual house. He didn't think to look in the garage room. He had already been dead in, right. in the so who knows how long he attic was there. of the garage. Which I believe they like gave a time. They estimate how long he was there, right? Didn't they? Yeah, it was two days prior. So he actually okay. died on April. 5th. He was there for a while. Yeah, it was a couple days. Yeah, crazy. They uh, the medical examiner pronounced him dead. So he had been dead for like two and a half days when they found him. Um, but what's interesting is that they were like, so Dylan Carlson obviously was a good friend of Kurt. He would have known about that spot, which everybody's like, Oh, nobody knew it was there. But when you look at the front of the house, the picture of their house and the picture of the garage, there's clearly a big, it almost looks like a little like deck on the top. And then there's a big window, like almost you could walk out of it. It's big. It looks like there's a a room room up there. Yeah, it looks like there's absolutely room up there. And it's it's surprising that like Tom, the P.I., he claims he didn't know about it because he had never been to the house before. Yeah. But Dylan, the guy he would, was have with, would have known that there was a spot that Kurt could have been. And, and they never went. Ball. But we can't really completely tell because, again, I have an image of this guy, Dylan, from the documentary, which right. was an actor. And the actor was sketches hell yeah, and over dramatic. Yeah, yeah. So but even in the interview to, of him, he's. Yeah, no, he's weird. He's weird. He's questionable. He kind of looks like a tweaker. He's kind of acting a little strange, but you know, what can you do? <laughs> I just think it's weird that he wouldn't have even mentioned that. Hey, let's go check this other spot in the garage that he could have possibly been in. Yeah. Like if you're his friend, why wouldn't you have done that? Yeah. Cause they could have found him earlier. They could have even maybe prevented that. It might've even been in there. If he was going to commit something, they could have went in there when he was about to do it. Yeah. So the fact that nobody checked that or nobody thought to check that is questionable to me. Yes. So 
on April 8th, the, the electrician's at the house and he is seeing this, this clear body on the floor. Um, and he, that's when he calls the police and reports that it looks like there's a dead body and the police get there and they say that, you know, the body was in horrible shape and he was, the body was only identifiable by fingerprints. Oh my gosh. And so this is one of the big things is like the media spins things. Cause yes. what we find out later is that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. I was going to say like how bad, I don't remember it being that bad mm-hmm. from what I've read. So when his body's discovered, he's lying down and he's holding a shotgun between mm-hmm. his legs, mm-hmm. uh, still holding on to the barrel. So I wanted to just play a clip from this documentary cause it's, um, they explain it very well and, yeah, they do. and we'll talk about why, you know, the evidence behind why this was not a suicide. Seattle police reports indicate that Kurt Cobain was found with a shotgun upside down with his left hand grasping the barrel in a vice-like grip known as a cadaveric spasm. Cadaveric spasm is a form of muscular stiffening that only occurs in death. This occurrence is indispensable to forensic investigation as it clearly shows the precise orientation of the deceased at the exact moment of death. In this case, Cobain's left hand gripping the barrel upside down as he was found. This all seems straightforward until you take into account the shotgun shell was found to Cobain's left side opposite of where we'd expect to find the shell on Cobain's right side. The exit chamber is clearly on Cobain's right side if it was fired upside down as it was found and as the cadaveric spasm confirms. Seattle PD explained the illogical trajectory of the shotgun shell by concluding that the shotgun was fired right side up by Cobain. The shotgun flipped upside down, expelling the shell to his left to finally rest in the position that it was found. This proposed scenario is impossible, not only because shotguns do not flip upside down when fired, it completely ignores the cadaveric spasm that locks the grip, dictating the precise orientation of the shotgun when fired. In order for the scenario the Seattle police stated occurred, Cobain's wrist would have to bend at an angle that is anatomically impossible. The cadaveric spasm shows the precise orientation of Cobain's hand at the exact moment of death. The only way that the shell could end up in the opposite side of the room is if, when the shell was expelled, hit an obstruction on Cobain's right side and ricocheted to Cobain's left side to land on the jacket. The crime scene clearly shows there was no such obstruction, which then puts into question if Cobain truly was alone in the greenhouse when the trigger was pulled. Okay, so my question with that, the only thing I haven't ever understood about that clip is, or that theory, is that, like, if someone else did it, why was his cadaver hanging on to the gun like that? Wouldn't, what, did the person, like, so, set it up yeah, afterwards? Yeah, so here, here's how I think, and, and I don't know why they didn't really, they didn't, they never, in this documentary, spell yeah. out exactly what happens. Yeah. Or what their theory is of what happens, and my theory of what happens is, A, so when they find his body, they find a, a uh, box, a tin yes. box that has all of the heroin uh, uh, paraphernalia in it. And um, clearly where he, sh- you know, he shot up an insane amount, which we'll talk about next. But my theory is that they whoever did this may have drug him, you know, put him in there, gave him the heroin. And as he's get taking that heroin, 
set up this mm-hmm. and set up the gun, put it, put it in his mouth. Cause that's where it, well, it went into his mouth. That's where the shot went through the back of the mouth and they set it up, put his hand on it. Cause well, I mean, he if, was, like, if he's, up fucked on up, if he's yeah. getting high and getting like seeing somebody get fucked up like yeah. that, you could easily grab their hand, ball it around it and literally pull the trigger for him. You could. And that could also be why there was no there's no evidence of um, another person found in there, too, as well, is because they that person could have used, you know, gloves, used his arms to do everything on the gun. That's why there was nothing Mm -hmm. on there and then did it and then left. Yeah, that you could set You could definitely set this up. Definitely. And I mean, to do this by yourself, as the police suggest, would be very difficult the gun is huge. It's a huge thing. Like, yeah. and, and if you look at the statistics for suicide, the, the amount of suicides that are committed by a shotgun versus are 5%. Yeah. That's so small compared to 80% with a handgun. Yeah. If you were planning to commit suicide you by a, a weapon, yeah. why would you go the shotgun route? Yeah. It's so like extreme. It's extreme and very like, especially if you're going to take heroin beforehand yeah. and then shoot yourself. Wouldn't it be easier to just use a handgun versus a giant like shotgun between your legs? That doesn't make Mm -hmm. any sense whatsoever. Mm -hmm. But this is the most compelling part of this conspiracy theory is the amount of heroin that's found in the toxicology report. I think this is the most compelling piece of evidence, period, in Mm -hmm. my opinion. I Mm -hmm. think this is really what gets me. So that was just Tom Grant talking about this is him and, and some experts who were a part of this documentary talking about the heroin. That's super interesting. Mm-hmm. The toxicology report from Kurt Cobain's autopsy indicated a heroin blood level of 1.52 milligrams per liter. Five milligrams will produce a level of 0.035 milligrams. Most users, even heavy users, only use up to 40 to 60 milligrams in one hit. So you can see to reach 1.52 milligrams per liter you're talking about an amount that would have certainly have exceeded 200 milligrams that were injected into kurt cobain three times the amount that would be considered lethal i think very legitimate questions have been raised about the level of heroin we have not in 18 years found a single case where somebody could have the level of heroin in their body that kurt did and still remain conscious 70 times the lethal dose for the average person, triple the lethal dose even for the most severe heroin addicts. It would have incapacitated and we would have been unconscious. And then roll down their sleeves, put away the heroin kit, pick up the shotgun, position it backwards and pull the trigger. That deals with coordinative functions. How about the emotional aspects of this? Why would he then shoot himself before the drug has had a chance to take effect? No study that I know of has correlated the use of heroin with suicide. I cannot think of a case in which I have had someone inject himself with a large amount of heroin and then proceed to kill himself. Uh, It just doesn't make sense and it doesn't fit in with these kinds of situations involving heroin. These are questions that I think deserve answers uh, and in fact require answers. Many of the questions could be answered if the medical examiner's office would make public the autopsy report. I haven't been able to see the toxicology report or the autopsy report because 
I haven't had access to review the actual documentation from the authorities. The autopsy report is public record. Apparently, in uh, this jurisdiction, it is not. In the case of Kurt Cobain, uh, they should have made them part of the release with the Freedom of Information. Why they didn't do that, I don't know. In hindsight, maybe they should have. We wouldn't be having this discussion today. That's crazy, man. I mean, it makes like no sense. It really doesn't. Why would why wouldn't he have just taken that much heroin and just overdosed and died and, you know, commit suicide by overdose? Exactly. Like, why add this whole other element? It makes no sense whatsoever. And he and, just wouldn't have been able to pick up the gun and do no, that and function and line it up no. well and, and even think about it. Like, no. there's just no way. And the official I mean, the official report says that his tolerance was insane. So that's why he had to do so much in order to get to a, a state, you know, where he would do that. But even then it's like there, the, these are medical professionals that are reviewing this saying that it's almost literally impossible for somebody to do that with the amount of heroin there is that it would literally render you unconscious. Right. So how the hell like do you then hold a shotgun and pull the trigger on yourself? And not only that, the lying that happens with the police here. So I think there is some form. I think either the police fucked up majorly with this and yeah, they, the initial scene or here, they like judged the situation too fast. They yeah. like came into the situation. Right. It was Kurt Cobain. He had a gun. I mean, it. what else would what do you think? Like, obviously not right off the bat, you think. But like with most people, you'd have probably have the police investigate a little more, but it like, I feel like Kurt Cobain had such a reputation and they just figured he was like a junkie. And like, Mm -hmm. um, I've seen a lot of cases where, you know, not all police stations, but some police stations like really judge people who use drugs and don't like Danny Ficky or, um, DJ, DJ, I'm sorry, Danny. God, my brain. DJ Ficky, mm-hmm. his case is the same thing. Like yeah. he, you know, There's lots I don't of think they took like it that. seriously. And he's same, same thing was shot. And it probably wasn't him that pulled the trigger. But now it's a suicide. Well, I think it's unfortunate, too, that in a lot of cases where addicts are, you know, either murdered or they're, you know, called as suicides, the police just don't take it as seriously because they're addicts, you know, and, and it's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. I think anybody out there who knows an addict or has been an addict or is an addict knows that the, the police for the most part do have this negative connotation on drug users mm-hmm. and oftentimes automatically assume either the worst about them or that they committed a crime or that they, you know, if it does look like a suicide, they're just going to call it a suicide. And that that's what the weird thing about this whole investigation is, is that, the police got there and not only did, you know, the media misreport it, but the police also just straight up lied about what happened. Right. And in this documentary, which I, th- I think is in this next clip, actually interviewed the, the officer that was the first one on the scene. And he like can't. And, and this actually had the Seattle police chief at the time there who was just talking about how. The, the the fact that the autopsy report has never been released, all the files and medical examiner's report has been kept under wraps. It hasn't been released to the public, like in many other cases where it's public information. But in this jurisdiction, for whatever reason, they're keeping it tight, locked up so nobody can see or nobody can really question the That's official so story. Sketchy. That's just weird. The whole wallet ID thing. And the fact that mainstream media reports to this day say that the ID was out of the wallet when they arrived on scene because his body was so unrecognizable. But that is 
just blatantly false. Just, yep, untrue. Listen, listen mm-hmm. to this. This is crazy. Seattle's own police reports indicate that Officer Lavandowski found Kurt Cobain's wallet lying on the floor. He opened it up, he removed his driver's license, and he put it on top of Cobain's wallet to take a photograph for evidence. Most of the media reported that Kurt left his driver's license exposed, and a lot of them went into a lot of detail that he did that so that everyone would recognize him, but it was completely false. The news media do poison the atmosphere. And I have been involved in cases in which it was impossible almost to overcome the beliefs that had been created within the community because of the way in which that particular death had been reported. Judging by the evidence at the scene, Love says, Cobain apparently drew a chair up to a window looking out on Puget Sound, sat down, took some more drugs, picked up his shotgun, and using his thumb, it seems, shot himself in the head physical damage was so severe that his body could only be identified by fingerprints. I was a bit surprised. Normally a shotgun wound to the head, the ones I've seen are pretty devastating, often making facial features unrecognizable. His head was not grossly deformed or badly damaged. I think I certainly would have recognized him. I don't see a reason why anyone wouldn't have who knew what he looked like. So that was the first responding officer there that said that that was completely false that he was unrecognizable. Yeah. He's like, I, you could tell you could who tell he was yep. and the ID thing is wrong. And literally like, I just read a Rolling Stone article that r- talks about this and still the official story is it that still reports it wrong is yeah. not what the actual mm-hmm. officer said, but yep. the Seattle police really fucked up on this. And even the chief of police at the time has been like, we need to reopen this case because we it's completely fucked it up. It's yeah. a complete mess because they allowed Kurt Cobain to be cremated six days after being discovered. Right. Just, that was the whole thing too, is like they let a patrol officer just rule it as a hot or rule it as a suicide yep, instead of, of doing what invest, most yeah. departments do and bring the homicide unit detectives in who have experience right. in investigating this type of case. Yeah. They judged it early. It. it looked like a suicide from a rock star that had drug problems yep. and all these issues. So they did exactly what, I mean, if someone set this up, this is exactly what they wanted. It was the perfect scenario. And that's yeah. where the whole conspiracy with Courtney possibly being involved in setting up this, you know, suicide uh, cover up type thing. There, there's actually evidence that she communicated with a detective who worked on this case, I believe, uh, Detective Terry something at the Seattle Police Department. They were friends or maybe even more than that. Right. She had a connection there. Mm-hmm. Um, so she it's very like suspicious. Like somebody she was like that. She was very snaky yes. or she's very snaky with that kind of stuff because the police just totally like fucked up with this. They waited 20 days or 30. They waited 30 days to process the shotgun for fingerprints, which is absurd. And they gave Courtney Love the shotgun to have it melted down. It's just That's absurd. It just makes no sense. But why? why? The, like, literally, why? Why would you do that? that, that why would you melt it down at, at all? <laughs> these experts are like, what the hell is wrong with you? Why would you do that? Yeah. Why would, why would you just rule this a suicide when clearly things don't make sense? And why wouldn't you at least, at least investigate, you know, the, you know, the questions around this and figure out for sure that it was a suicide before you just fucking call it a yep. suicide. Yeah. Because one of the weirdest things about this is the suicide note. So there was a note found next to Kurt, which had a pen through it. And the note stated speaking from the tongue of an experienced simpleton who obviously would rather be an emasculated infantile complainee. This note should be pretty easy to understand. 
all the warnings from the punk rock 101 courses over the years since my first introduction to the, shall we say, ethics involved with independence and the embracement of your community has proven to be very true. I haven't felt the excitement of listening to as well as creating music along with reading and writing for too many years now. I feel guilty beyond words about these things. For example, when we're backstage and the lights go out and the manic arm yeah manic roar of the crowds begins it doesn't affect me the way in which it did for freddie mercury who seemed to love relish in the in the love and adoration of the crowd which is something i totally admire and envy the fact is i can't fool you any of you any one of you it simply isn't fair to you or me the worst crime i can think of would be to rip people off by faking it and pretending as if i'm 100 percent fun sometimes i feel as i should have a punched in time clock before I walk out on stage. I've tried everything within my power to appreciate it. And I do God believe me, I do, but it's not enough. I appreciate the fact that I and we have affected and entertained a lot of people and must be one of those narcissists who only appreciate things when they're gone. I'm too sensitive. I need, I need to be slightly numb in order to regain the enthusiasms I once had as a child. On our last three tours, I've had much better appreciation for all the people I've known personally and and as fans of our music, but I still can't get over the frustration, the guilt and empathy I have for everyone. There's good in all of us. And I think I simply love people too much, so much that it makes me feel too fucking sad. The sad, little, sensitive, unappreciative Pisces. Jesus, man, why don't you just enjoy it? I don't know. I have a goddess of a wife who sweats ambition and empathy and a daughter who reminds me too much of what I used to be full of love and joy, kissing every person she meets because every, everyone is good and will do her no harm. And that terrifies me to the point where I can barely function. I can't stand the thought of Francis becoming the miserable, self-destructive death rocker that I've become. I have it good, very good. And I'm grateful. But since the age of seven, I've been become hateful towards all humans in general, only because it seems so easy for people to get along that have empathy only because I love and feel sorry for people too much, I guess. Thank you all from the pit of my burning, nauseous stomach for your letters and concern during the past years. I'm too much of an erratic, moody baby. I don't have the passion anymore, and so remember, it's better to burn out than to fade away. Peace, love, empathy, Kurt Cobain. And then there's a little note uh, at the bottom. It says, Francis and Courtney, I'll be at your altar. Please keep going, Courtney, for Francis for her life, which will be so much happier without me. I love you. I love you. Does that sound like a suicide note to you? No, it sounds like the, the first part. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, it definitely sounds like him in the beginning. Yes. Like, and it made a lot of sense and it lined up a lot with how he was reported to have been feeling at the time about the music industry and stuff. But it seems like a letter just leaving the music industry. Like he was just like ready to move on. Take a break from music. Yeah. Yeah. And he did feel guilty about it Mm because he he knew his fans loved him and stuff. Um, But yeah, I feel like some people just aren't meant to be famous and he's just one of those people who, it was really it got overwhelming too much for him. him to the point where it's, right. it was, it wasn't fun anymore. It yeah. took the fun, the fame took the fun out of it for him and the passion that he felt for it. And I think he was wa- wanting to walk away from music. Was he wanting to end his life? Maybe, but from that note, I wouldn't get that necessarily. But, and then the fact that at the very end, if you look at the actual note itself, it's very weird because there's a, there's almost a different type of handwriting 
um, that's kind yep. of questionable at the, at the bottom, which is the part that is the classic suicide uh, note, like, you know, goodbye, you'll be yep. happier without me. I love you. And it's only at the end that he says anything remotely that sounds like a suicide letter. Plus, if this was a suicide letter to everyone, not just his fans, why wouldn't he write more to Courtney and his daughter? Yeah. You would think that he would write a lot to his daughter. I think he loved his daughter. Why would he leave her with nothing? Yeah. Like he would say like, Francis, this, like don't do this in your life and remember this. And you know, I feel like there wasn't enough. It was like so involved when it came to the fans and the music, but then like literally skipped over the rest of his life. Yeah. it, It literally looks like somebody, found this entry, you know, maybe it was a journal entry or something like that. And then they, you know, wrote in his handwriting or tried to mimic his handwriting at the bottom and then wrote that little last kind of suicide bit. Yeah. It's, it's kind of crazy. And what's also interesting about the suicide note is, uh, linguistics, uh, experts and handwriting experts have looked at it and they believe that the handwriting at the bottom is slightly different from the rest of the note. Which is interesting because that part is the like classic suicide uh, verbiage, you know, kind right. of the, the goodbye and, you yes. know, you're better off without me. And, you know, like you had said, why wouldn't he have written more for his daughter and stuff? It's it's very fishy mm-hmm. for sure. Um, but one of the things that I find interesting is that Tom, the PI, uh, has said that he believes the note may have been written by Courtney or at least a portion of it, like that bottom portion of it could have been written by uh, her. If this conspiracy is true and she had some part to play in it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. A handwriting expert from Oxford university compared copies of Kurt's handwriting to the note and point out, pointed out over a dozen things that didn't match up. So, yeah, I mean, I just think there's a lot of really weird things with the note and with just everything else. Um, so like if this was a murder, then who did it, you know, like who could have murdered him. And one of the biggest theories is the idea that Courtney hired the nanny, Mm -hmm. Michael do it to kill Kurt and then stages a suicide, which I think could have been possible Could have done it. I mean, definitely. I mean, he was there. Yeah. He would, he would have known about that spot. Mm hmm. And it, it definitely could be someone that we don't even know of. Like they're easily it could be could some be, hired like assassin or something like that, that she had hired or mm-hmm. somebody un- completely unrelated. And I mean, I think Dylan's a little sketchy too. I feel yeah, like major. he may be in, you know, may know something or know more than he's letting on mm-hmm. because yeah, the fact that he, I don't know. And, and he was on drugs too. So it could just be, he forgot or he was high when they were searching the house and stuff too, that he didn't notice the garage. Right. But yeah, it's really, it's really, really crazy because I think there's a lot of evidence to at least suggest that we need to reopen this case yes. and we need to investigate the murder aspect of this, mm-hmm. um, which I don't know how much you can do now with all the forensic evidence they and his won't. body's cremated. It'll I mean, probably never be done. And Courtney, right? She's like, keeps his shit oh, like, yeah, locked she, up. Yep. And she's got like a serious legal team shutting down like so many different projects and talks. People and, wanting to do more documentaries on it yep. and explore this more. You have to tread lightly with her. But it's so obvious that they were having problems before he died and he was planning to divorce Courtney. Yes. So the motive is there that she may have wanted him gone so that she could get that wealth and and boost in her career. And well, she would get everything versus getting like half or whatever. Right. From the divorce. Yeah. 
Um, and she would get sole custody of their daughter. I mean, in divorces, there's always plenty of motive, right? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. And then there's that one sketchy guy. Yes. Who they think if somebody were to do it, could have been this guy and his name is El Duce or Eldon Hokey. Yeah. He's like an, um, he's like this, I don't know. I don't even know what weird call band him. He, dude. Yeah, he had a he, rock band called the mentors. They all wore like masks, like underwear and they'd like they run like, around spaking each other. It was like, very oh, they strange. did like straight on porn on stage and stuff. Yeah, it was weird stuff. It was some very weird shit. But so. he, he claimed that Courtney asked him to kill Kurt for $50,000. That's why he's yeah. a part of this. Yeah. And he did this video and he was like t- sketching while he, they were recording him. And this was the older documentary I was talking yeah. about. Um, and he just straight he up found him. this guy's house and went up there with a camera in his backyard. And he's like, yeah, she offered me 50 grand. And he's like, I should have done it. I should have done it. Yeah. It's like, a really fun, weird. Yeah, clip. Like he was trying to like make it sound like he didn't do it, but he, I mean, he definitely could not have done it too, but here's a weird thing. Two days after that clip was taken, he was killed by a train. What the hell? What are the chances too? That's like in a train with no witnesses. He's just like ended up dead from a train. He could have jumped, I guess, but Mm -hmm. I don't know. Pretty interesting. So yeah, I feel like there's so many different possibilities with this theory. I really want to know what you guys think of this. Yeah. I mean, just Courtney's behavior is sketchy. There was one, sorry, one last thing I just wanted to to put in there was the fact that she claimed that she had found a suicide note prior to in a prior suicide attempt of his. And she claims that her attorney told her to burn it. And she did, she said, mm-hmm. which why would you and why would your attorney advise that? Right. Right. Why would anyone advise to do that? Yeah. So there's just I, her behavior sketchy. The way she talks about it is sketchy. And I mean, she doesn't talk about it now. No. And she if, if she was if this conspiracy is real. She really set this up and really created this story. You know, this narrative uh-huh. of of Kurt Cobain committing suicide and it stuck. It yeah. worked. You know, if, right. if it, that's you know, suicide is not what had happened. She really yep. could have got away with it. I mean, and I mean, she of course says he committed allegedly. suicide. He sticks to the story. Right. Um, her, their daughter, Frances also sticks to that story and the they're mates, very close still. Former bandmates, Nirvana, uh-huh. Dave, everybody so believes it's, that it's, it's totally like up to the individual to decide. I'm really curious your guys' opinions um, on this one because yeah. it's just so it could go either way it's yeah, like a it really perfect could. storm of different things like that, there could there's definitely enough evidence that there could have been an ex, uh, conspiracy but there also is enough evidence right, that, that it really was suicide right. so it's it's a difficult one for sure yeah, i don't know but the heroin um, thing personally gets me. i really yes that's what gets me too just it doesn't make sense it doesn't make sense and, and i think it deserves to, is bullshit i'm like it's so weird to me i think this i think it deserves to be reopened and looked at uh from an and you know, another person that's like really interesting, their opinion in this is like Courtney's, I believe either father or stepfather. Oh yeah. He that had like totally thinks that she did it. Mm-hmm. He wrote a whole book about how she did it. He did. That's, yeah. that's really interesting that. And like she, people he in thinks, her family, like just are like, she's awful pretty much. I don't like, know, man. People don't have very yeah. nice things to say about Courtney. No, like no. in all the, there's so many, there's so much shit about her. So it's interesting. It's really interesting. And yeah, I mean, let us know what you guys think about this. Like, do you think it was murder? Do you think, you know, he really committed suicide? I mean, I don't know. Either way, it's it sucks that he's gone. But yeah, I mean, I just want the truth. I want the truth about what happened. And I think there's enough compelling evidence to take a look at things. And again, why isn't the autopsy report or medical examiner report been released? You can't get it like 
nobody has access to it still. Yeah, because that, that no would provide either. a lot of information. Because a, a medical examiner is not not going to like lie about shit most likely. Right. So there's you know it might help us put this case to rest. But until then, I think it's kind of an open open book, open case. You know, like who knows? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know. Really interesting one though. Um, yeah, some of these murder conspiracies are just crazy. But yeah, hopefully you guys enjoyed this episode of the Mile Higher Podcast. If you did, uh, smash a like on it if you're on YouTube. Uh, be sure to follow us on Spotify and iTunes. And Thank Instagram you. at Mile Higher Podcast yeah. and Twitter at Mile yeah. Higher Pod. Yeah. Without the cast. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's it. We'll go ahead and wrap it up there for today. Thanks again for listening. And we will see you guys next week. Stay safe. And stay woke. See you guys next time. This is what he said about his newfound wealth and money. Yeah, you can't buy happiness. I mean, that made me happy for a little while. <laughs> but, I mean, I was just probably almost just as happy with, you know, fine. I don't know. I used to, I, I look back on going to secondhand stores and stuff like that and finding a little treasure like that. And that actually meant more to me because it was, it was more of a stab in the dark in a way, you know, because you didn't know if you're going to be able to afford it and you don't know what you're really looking for and when you find it it's it's more special to you rather than you know having a thousand dollars and going into a store like that and just buying the whole store you know it's it's not as you know it's not as special Here's to getting back together, to planned lunches and unplanned cookouts, to grandma's recipes and smells that take us back, to passing down plates and traditions. Here's to warm embraces and familiar faces, to your best friends becoming best friends, to scheming, dreaming, and food still steaming. Here's to laughter and love, to growing closer than ever, for all of life's get-togethers. Chinette, here's to us. The $2 Small Me Cafe is the answer to your day. The question is whether you go with a rich caramel frappe paired with a warm cinnamon roll, a sweet caramel macchiato paired with a blueberry muffin made with real blueberries, or a hot chocolate paired with a classic apple fritter. Mm, 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 mm. Don't worry, there's never a wrong choice. Price and participation may vary, cannot be combined with any other offer.